This podcast is brought to you in part by Sing and Dog Double Read Supply. Sing and Dog Double Reads is an online double read shop and one of the largest suppliers of high quality and affordable professional and student reads for oboe and bassoon in the USA. Please visit www.singandog.com to see all of their products. That's S-I-N-G-I-N-D-O-G.com. This episode is sponsored in part by MKL Reads. MKL is the one-stop shop for handmade oboe reeds where you can try reeds from various makers and select the one that is best for you. Visit mklreads.com and enter coupon code DOUBLEREADDISH for free shipping on your first order. That's coupon code DOUBLE SPACE READ SPACE DISH, all caps, for free shipping on your first order. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson, and you're listening to Double Read Dish a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Welcome to episode 12. For this episode, we thought we might start by talking about super Superstitions. Uh, Jackie, do you have a superstition when you perform? I do have some superstitions, and I'd first like to apologize for the, the quality of my voice to our listeners. I'm getting over a bit of a cold, uh, so if I sound um, stuffy or, or not like my usual clear-voiced self, I, I know you'll forgive me. <laughs> well, you are a warrior woman, so... It'll be great. It's true. It's true. Um, some of my superstitions, I don't know, we were talking about it before, and we thought about reed thread color and good luck colors and bad luck colors. I think probably a lot of our listeners can relate to that. Um, hot pink is dead to me. Dead to me. I cannot make a good read in hot pink. <laughs> Do you have like a like a bad color or a good color? I do have some bad and good look colors. Actually, hot pink is a pretty good color for me. I'll go to that if I'm needing some good reads. I feel like it gives me the the mojo that I need in my read making. Uh, do you want me to send you my spool of cursed hot pink read thread? I do not need your cursed thread, girl. You can keep that in Mississippi. <laughs> You know, something else I do is um, before I get ready to go to, say, a rehearsal or a concert, I am very methodical about making sure that I have every single thing that I need. So double, triple checking that I have um, my entire instrument in my case, and actually that comes from a a real-life traumatic event. (laughs) Um, Oh, my God. Where, well, and disclaimer, I was 23 when this happened, so I'd like to think that I'm much older and wiser and uh, know better than to let something like this happen now. But um, I was actually teaching (laughs) at the Tanglewood Institute where I met Andrew Brady that we talked about in episode one, and we were off-site at um, some school doing a, a session, and once it was over, I was talking to the participants, chatting and putting my bassoon away, not really paying much attention. And I remember on the way back thinking, wow, my bassoon feels a lot lighter than normal. Oh, well. And then 
getting it out later in the day, and my boot joint was not in my case. I'd just forgotten it at the school. <laughs> so I had to go back to my boss and be like, uh, can you drive me back to the school? I left uh, about a quarter of my instrument behind. Yeah. <laughs> so now I'm like, okay, boot joint, long joint, bell, wing joint, vocal, seat strap, reeds, sheet music. I had to double, triple check that I have it all because I have definitely... I don't know, just left random bassoon parts across the countryside. (laughs) (laughs) I also do the pull off the road triple check. You know, when you get like halfway to a gig and you're like, if I show up and I don't have my oboe, (laughs) I don't know what I'll do. (laughs) Although one time I did forget my reads to a gig. Oh my gosh, what happened? It was so embarrassing. (laughs) Well, Luckily, my teacher was playing principal, so I was like, um, could I please borrow a reed? Um, I forgot my reeds at home. He was like, get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> so I definitely, and if I'm like, if I have to double, I'll like do the triple check of like, okay, do I have all parts of my English horn? Do I have oboe? Do I have English horn reeds? Oboe reads, music, stand, but all of that stuff. It's so stressful. Those are all pretty universal. Are there any, like, oboe-specific ones, like getting water out of the keys and stuff like that? I would oh guess what you got is. <laughs> oh, my God. I just, I constantly have my hands on the top joint. Just constant, like, I'm, I, I feel like my, the warmth from my hands will, like, somehow seep into the instrument and <laughs> will prevent me from getting water. And I have no idea if it works or not, but I'm not willing to stop doing it. <laughs> well, one bassoon-specific one is uh, we have this, many of us have a mechanism called a whisper log. And it helps keep us in the low register if we're going to be using the whisper key a lot. We can put it on to, you know, uh, free up our thumb. And if it's on accidentally, it can really mess up the notes above in the mid and high register. And it is like a total fear of mine that I will have accidentally left on the whisper lock. So I'm always like double and triple checking. Oh, my gosh, is my whisper lock off? Is it off? And, yes, that's a real fear of mine. (laughs) You know what I'm also scared of and superstitious about is like, I have heard horror stories about people performing and then just like a mechanism falls off. Like, (laughs) like a screw will fall out and then just like a piece of the instrument will fall off. I'm terrified. So like, I have heard of people having like a spare complete set of screws and springs with them at all times so they can just like fix it in the moment but I'm constantly terrified that I'm going to be playing a solo and then like a piece of my oboe will fall off. Well that reminds me of uh, good friend Erin Foster. Um, I hope she won't mind me telling this story but she was playing and um, many bassoonists hook their seat strap onto their bassoon um, with an S hook and uh, holes that are drilled into the bottom of the boot joint. And so she was all of a sudden playing, and then her bassoon just slams into the ground because the metal had wore down and broke. And so all of a sudden, 
hurt. So <laughs> it just, like, slammed under the ground. So now she uses a cup and not an S-hook. But I don't know. Are we just giving our listeners reasons to be traumatized and scared on stage? <laughs> Was this a horrible idea? <laughs> It'll be, everything will be fine. Everything is fine. <laughs> So my shout-out this week is actually a recycled shout-out from something that um, you suggested in one of our earlier episodes. It's called it's a book called The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks, and you recommended it on the podcast and then to me specifically, and I was like, oh, okay, great, so I ordered it, and I just, like, hadn't read it yet. And then this week, I've been diving into it, and it's so good. Thank you so much for recommending it. It's like changing how I look at everything. It's like talking about how you can live your life in your zone of genius, which is kind of his hokey way of explaining, like, living your most fulfilling life. And I love how he um, frames things as it's either you moving toward your ultimate goals or you self-sabotaging into a comfort zone of misery, I guess. (laughs) It's kind of of an extreme way to put it, so I guess you have to read the book. But it's really interesting, and it's making me think about the things that I do that are not moving me toward my goals. And then, like, okay, if I'm doing this, I need to do this other thing instead because that thing is going to move me toward my best life and my ultimate goals. So it's really good, and I'm really glad you recommended it. Oh, I'm so glad you're enjoying it. You know, I actually have a friend, the friend who recommended it to me, and she listens to it once a week as an audio book and kind of treats it as oh, that's so scripture. Good. It's, it's really been formative to her, and yeah, I enjoyed it so much as well. Yeah, and it's really short. So if you're, if you're a more committed reader than I am, you'll get it read in like a day. <laughs> <laughs> What's your shout-out, Jackie? My shout-out is a documentary called Dancer. Uh, it's on Hulu, but if you don't have Hulu, I believe it's also available on Netflix and iTunes. And Dancer is about a ballet dancer, Sergei Polunin, I believe I'm saying his name correctly, um, originally from the Ukraine, but was trained at the Royal Ballet School in London and was the youngest dancer to become a soloist there. Um, and I've mentioned before on the podcast that I really like watching documentaries about athletes and um, artists. I find them very inspiring. But one thing I think was a really different and unique take on this documentary is that Sergey is really open about the fact that he struggles with how conflicted he feels about the sacrifice that it takes to do art at the high level that he's doing it at, that, you know, we don't have as much time. We don't have proximity necessarily to the people that we love. We don't get to choose where the work comes, you know, and that's hard for him to reconcile. And it was really refreshing to hear someone speak so honestly, you know. I feel like a lot of times, especially in the age of the Internet, we so frame being able to pursue our artistry professionally in this hashtag blessed way, which is a good thing. You know, it's really good to keep it in perspective. Um, But there is a cost to pursuing our art, and sometimes that can weigh on us emotionally 
And um, so it's just really interesting to see how he comes to terms with with those feelings and uh, what he ultimately comes around to uh, thinking and feeling in terms of his career and his life. So I highly recommend it. And he's not too hard on the eyes either. So (laughs) if that is your thing, I highly recommend Sergei Palunin in Dancer, the documentary. Right out of the box, gender reed knives are the sharpest reed knives on the market. Each original gender reed knife is handcrafted using traditional Asian knife making techniques. Japanese steel is first forged into shape, hollow ground, and then hardened to Rockwell 5860, making the edge on the blade very strong yet durable. Each blade is then polished and hand sharpened to perfection using shaped in professional sharpening stones up to 8,000 grit. Genda even personalizes your reed knife before sending it. You can choose a right-handed, left-handed, or straight burr from their drop-down menu and easy-to-use website. Genda has also announced new products for April of 2017, including the Genda Reed Tool Roll, a high-quality leather tool storage roll, including three large and three small sleeves, and one covered pouch to store your reed-making knives and tools. They also offer Genda Leather Reed Knife Sheaths and a Genda Cutting Block. Visit GendaIndustries.com today. Dedicated to providing excellent handmade oboe and bassoon reeds to discriminating double reed players of all ages and abilities, Double or Nothing Reeds has recently expanded to sell double reed tools and supplies, gift items, and more. This includes knives, knife blades, thread, staples, cane, bags, and resources for students. As authorized Fox and Yamaha dealers, they offer an extensive range of oboes and bassoons for all levels. In addition, they sell quality used instruments on consignment. If you're looking for private oboe lessons but can't find anyone nearby, Double or Nothing Reads offers oboe lessons via Skype. Visit doubleornothingreads.com for good quality and affordable reed-making supplies and accessories, lessons, instruments, and much more. That's doubleornothingreads.com. We are so pleased to welcome to Double Read Dish, Eugene Isatov, Principal Oboe of the San Francisco Symphony. Eugene, welcome to Double Read Dish. I'm glad to be with you. Could we start off by having you talk to us about your musical training and educational journey and your path to how you got to where you are today? Well, sure. Um, I am, of course, from Russia, and um, I went to the special music school called the Gnesin, that's the formal name, I suppose, the special music school of the Gnesin family, which is the same school where my father and uncle went to, actually. And um, in fact, I'm sitting next to their poster of their graduation recital from 1967, and, and it intimidates me every day. Um, and um, I studied, um, you know, you can't start with the oboe. Uh, at age six, that's when specialized music training begins in Russia. So I started with the sort of a pre-oboe instrument, little recorder, as well as piano, which was mandatory secondary instrument for everybody. Um, and I studied at the Gnesin School until um, I was 17. 
And at 17, I moved to Boston to study at Boston University with the great Ralph Gomberg. And that's where I continued my education. I began my education in the States. That was, a, of course, a completely dramatic and unbelievable change in every possible way in my life. And I studied in Boston with Ralph Gomberg for four years. And then I continued my education um, in several other orchestras because that, that, that's really what that was. I was just so young when I got my first job. To say that I was green is, it would be a major understatement. I was neon green when I got there. I was glow in the dark. So that's why I say that I continued my education there and in the orchestras where I've played. So I am a fellow Boston University alumni, so that was very cool to hear. Um, I wonder if you could talk about, you mentioned it was a really dramatic change from Russia coming over to the United States. Could you tell us a little bit more about what that experience was like? Well, I don't know where to start because, I mean, in every way, my life changed. And when you're 17, you know, you sort of get a chance to really grow up in one place. You are quite formed. Your identity is very, very strong. It's a, it's such a great culture. I am so proud of it. It uh, is in every aspect of who I am, certainly beyond musical. And on the other hand, when you're 17, you're young enough to really absorb and really develop and take on a whole new thing, a whole new journey, uh, which was Boston for me, you know, America with a capital A. And, you know, it was a very dramatic time because um, I really had no idea how any of this would be. And also, you know, the world has changed a lot since then because now people travel to go across the world to other countries to study and to continue their careers. Sometimes they come back, other times they go to other places or stay. But in those days, really, this was unprecedented. I am the first Russian wind player that basically ever did that and ever got a, a principal job eventually in a in major orchestra in the U.S. And that basically was like this crazy, insane dream that for some reason I had. And I mean, I can tell you why uh, the main reasons why I left, of course, was because I felt that, you know, I'm not from Russia. I'm from the Soviet Union. That's a whole that's a whole different thing. It's uh, it was if you listen to Shostakovich and Prokofiev, that is the country that 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 music describes. And that country was coming to an end. Everything was ending, and I felt that my life had artistically and personally had been predetermined somehow by what was possible in that society. And I had this crazy dream that, first of all, um, you know, I grew up watching all those 80s movies and America, I'm sorry, this is kind of f funny to admit, but America to me was... To represented by, I don't know, Michael J. Fox, Back to the Future, you know, mm -hmm. Palm Trees, Mustang, Hollywood, Coca-Cola, you know, Levi Jeans and all of that stuff. And, and you know, skyscrapers and more importantly, just freedom, like the last uh, line in Braveheart. Mm -hmm. uh, so <laughs> it was just that kind of feeling of freedom, except in a much more positive way, because he actually dies after he says that. Mm -hmm. So it was a very positive thing. <laughs> and, you know, and musically, I have to say that, again, I am um, 
I come from a generation. There's a scary sentence. I come from a generation <laughs> that did not have YouTube or Facebook when I was uh, 17. So um, whatever recordings I had, they were copies of a copy of some record that somebody would bring because you couldn't just go to a store and buy one. And I remember um, I would get recordings from, you know, of course, Russian orchestras and the Western European orchestras. And then I would get recordings from American orchestras. And in some cases, I did not even know which ones because there was no label. And I remember this one time I, I got this copy of a copy of a recording um, of Swan Lake, the Swan Lake Suite, as well as uh, Tchaikovsky's First Symphony. And I for sure knew it was the American, it was an American orchestra. I did not know which one, but American orchestras have a very particular sound. And of course, the Swan Lake Suite opens with the oboe solo. And I remember, my God, that was just so beautiful. And then and the rest of the winds came in. And it was the kind of playing that I had not heard in Russia, in Eastern Europe, for that matter, at that time. It was just so incredibly vocal and beautiful and luscious and blended at the same time soloistic. It was just unlike anything I ever heard before. And combined with my feelings when my life had been sort of predetermined by the situation, by the deteriorating situation and the last leg of the Soviet Union, I really thought I would love to come to America and study there. And long story short, um, I ended up studying with Ralph Gomberg, and a few years later, I found out that that recording was actually the Boston Symphony with Ralph Gomberg playing that solo. Mm -hmm. So you might say it was just meant to be, that somehow I would send a tape of, of the last round of the old Russian Wind Players contest, which I won, and somebody recorded it, and I sent it to my mother, who was already in the States, and I said, find me a teacher. And she sent that tape to a friend of hers somewhere who sent it in turn to somebody else who was in Boston. And he sent it to, you know, the oboe professor at BU at Boston University, Ralph Gomberg. And that's how that tape came to Ralph Gomberg, who immediately called my mother and said, uh, you have to bring this boy to the States. I will teach him. You just have to do it now because, you know, the clock is ticking and uh, we have a lot of work to do. And he's just in that right age when we should do it. And that's how I came here on July 7th, 1991. Mm. And I landed, I remember I landed in JFK and uh, we were on our way back to Jersey, stuck in this horrible traffic on the Verrazano Bridge in front of this incredible view of southern Manhattan. That amazing skyline. And of course, you know, the fanfare for the common man just had to be mm -hmm. on the radio at that precise moment. <laughs> and uh, I, I remember, I mean, this view represented to me America. This view, it meant to me that, you know, if I work hard and uh, um, maybe my crazy dream of accomplishing this is possible here. Well, I'd like to hear about all of it. I would love to hear about what it was like to study with Ralph Gomberg and what kind of read-making transition you had to make. Also. Sure. Mm -hmm. Well, coming to Ralph Gomberg was a big, big transition um, because, you know, of course I realize this now because I've been teaching for, for over 20 years, but back then you had no idea. Um, you really can't fully appreciate 
and what a teacher does for you. Because what I realize now is what Ralph Gombrich was able to do is that he, of course, he saw the potential in me. He saw the things that he believed I could do. But he also saw the many things that just had to go away completely and uh, the things that were necessary in order to train uh, to study in the American tradition of oboe playing, to inherit Tabito's ideas about wind playing, etc. And that balance is very unique because as you're trying to develop someone, you can really just um, replace their own identity with, with your own as a teacher. That's a big danger. And Ralph Gombrich was able to combine those things. He truly allowed me to become whoever I was going to be. In fact, as much as I admired him, he he was a very admirable figure. He was larger-than-life kind of a guy in every possible way, musically and otherwise. But he really, he said, listen, he made it very clear to me, I do not want you to become the second me. I want you to become the first you. And, of course, Ambusher reads breath control. Um, Everything was new. I had never seen American reed making. I had never made a reed. You know, in those days that we would buy reeds and it would last us a certain amount of time. And uh, it was the first thing that struck me about his concept, uh, the, uh, the Tabuto way of looking at making music, is just, you know, we oboists, we wind players in general, we get to get so stuck with our own, our own things, our own problems, our own, you know, reeds and all this instrumental stuff. And that's too bad because it very much isolates us from, you know, the rest of the musical process. And studying with Gomberg, uh, it immediately became very clear that we really can and should learn from string players. We should learn from vocalists. In fact, singing was always the ideal that is the most perfect instrument. And... We should not get stuck in our particular problems. We need to be flexible, both instrumentally and musical. And this kind of artistic flexibility, if you will, it really describes his his way of teaching. And that was, well, very tough at first, of course, because I, I was already 17. I had been playing the oboe. The reason I was there is because I was able to do certain things very well, which took a lot of conviction from my part. But on the other hand, you know, he had to open up my my eyes and to allow me to to grow, which which meant that he had to be very direct with me and say, "Look, I'm sorry, this doesn't work, and you have to look for something better." And that's really another thing that I appreciate so much about his teaching is just how it wasn't criticism just for the sake of negativity. It was criticism that made me feel that if I conquer this or the other problem. Um, I will become a better musician. And he always made me feel like I could do anything. He always made me believe in myself right from the start. Uh, reeds were tough. And, you know, he comes from a slightly older school of reed making, of course. He was also a very tough kind of a guy. And I remember certain sayings that he would say frequently like, well, <laughs> that's the way the cookie crumbles, in other ways, <laughs> you know, I just see in French it sounds so much more romantic. C'est la vie. <laughs> uh, anything in French, of course, is immediately so much more charming. But yeah. uh, 
you know, but really just look, that's the way it goes. Deal with it. You know, it's not, uh, or how about this one? Who says life is easy? Mm. Sometimes it's just, it takes guts and it's very tough what we do. It's not just read, it's everything. It really does take guts. In fact, there was a wonderful Time Magazine article about the Gombrich brothers. I think it was called the Obo brothers from 1957 or something like that. That's back in the, in the days when the Time Magazine wrote about classical music. Could you believe that? <laughs> and it was about the Gombrich brothers. Uh, Ralph Gombrich, principal of the Boston Symphony, Harold Gombrich, uh, first oboist of the New York Philharmonic. And there was a wonderful quote by Harold in which he says that an oboist must have tenacity of a bull, but also sensitivity of Alice in Wonderland. Mm. And, you know, that's of course so poetic, but it's very true. We need to combine these qualities. We need to combine this wonderful sensibility and just wonderful curiosity about the world so we can be expressive and artistic and free in order to do it. But we cannot do this without this constant inner strength that will allow us to do the hard work and to prepare what we need to do and to make the reads for those of us that have the great pleasure of making reads, right? <laughs> and, you know, it really takes both of those things, not just one or the other. And Ralph, he truly embodied those. He had those qualities and he made us, he made those qualities contagious. We wanted to emulate him. All of us admired him, but it was not just about playing the oboe or making reads. It was about making music and, and, um, we, um, of course, there's so much of him in all of us who studied with him and actually in all of my friends because there's so much of him in me that I have passed it on to everybody I know. And by the way, my older, uh, the older of, of my two boys is named Ralph after Ralph Gomber. Oh, what a tribute. Do you have favorite um, string players and um vocalists, opera singers that you like to listen to for inspiration? Of course, although that changes. I mean, I can tell you that for sure I, I am so incredibly influenced by Heifetz. I mean, how can you not be? There's such incredible, brilliant virtuosity, but mm -hmm. also it's combined with a wonderful musicality and there's just a, such a consistency of playing. It's not robotic and impersonal. It's very human and so dark and so intense and that's absolutely perfect. Um, but you know, when you hear it, of course, I'm not a violinist, so I don't only appreciate it violinistically, thank God, I appreciate it musically. But also, uh, just being from Russia, um, I, I, I always was just so uh, impressed by great piano playing and in general, piano is such a necessary and wonderful way to look at music. And, you know, it, I think it's so helpful, no matter what you do, if you sing, if, if you play any other instrument. And the piano truly offers such a balanced view on the vertical and the horizontal and the melody and on the harmony at the same time. It's very visual. It's right there in front of you. And I admired very much Murray Pariah my whole life players like Radu Lupu and, of course, Rubinstein, of course, Horowitz, and a um, huge impression on me. And, you know, as far as singing goes, well, that's just a very long list. Of course, I'm very much influenced by oboists um, as well, other oboists. And what I find 
wonderful today is all of us are more aware of what's going on because all of us are more connected. It's easier to hear people and with their recordings. It's easier to travel. So I find that there's no longer this sort of animosity or allegiances to camps like you're over here in Europe, you're over here in the States. Like, And if you are in the States, like which camp do you do? The Philadelphia, the, you know, the Cleveland. I mean, there's great traditions out there and they are, of course, to be respected. But I think what's happened is that in the newer generation of players, we have somehow managed to learn a little bit from just about everybody. And for that reason, um, I've admired people from various schools. And um, the old boys that have had the most influence on me uh, when I was younger, other than my teacher, Rob Gomberg, of course, um, were, well, I have to mention Dick Woodhams. Mm-hmm. And I have to mention John Farillo, Elaine Duvas, and Peter Bowman. These are the players that I um, that were still playing um, um, in the Met. Of course, two of them, and uh, Peter Bowman in St. Louis, and Dick in Philadelphia still. And I would hear them live so often, not too far from Boston, and it was just so spectacular to hear them every time I did. And they all left an amazing influence on me to this day. And uh, it, it also brings me great joy that all of them are my colleagues now and, and that we all get along. That's a wonderful feeling. But, uh, you know, I've learned from so many others. It's just that I think that this idea of camps and tradition, um, a lot of people misinterpret what that means because, you know, the point is music. Great music making is the end goal of what we should do as musicians. Serving any particular ideology um, no matter how, how brilliant it may be, ultimately is not the point of music. And if you only do one thing, that means you may be miss out on something else. And this is something that certainly string players, singers, and piano players have learned. They have, uh, you know, oboe is a relatively young instrument, about 150 years or so. So our, our, History is much, much less than modern oboe. You know, the history of the violin is much longer. So, you know, they've had the opportunity to learn from other traditions. But I think that's such a wonderful thing to try to see what people are playing like. I don't know, not only in Philadelphia, Boston, Berlin, Chicago, San Francisco, but maybe in, in, I don't know, in other places and combine how that can apply to you. And I think there's a lot, a lot of this can be learned by everyone. A lot of that can be um, used for all of us and for all of our students to become better musicians. Mm-hmm. Um, you've had such an illustrious career playing in many of our country's finest orchestras. Could you talk to us about audition preparation? I know our listeners would be eager to get hints and just kind of hear about your process as you prepare for all these successful auditions that you've had in very competitive scenarios. Well, well, first of all, thank you for this uh, scary description of my achievements. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, it's, I mean, I will say that, of course, um, I'm quite good at what I do. I will also immediately say I'm very lucky because, you know, it, it really does take both of those things. It takes there's a certain amount of fortune involved in this. But I will say that 
you know, auditions are so difficult and they're so subjective and there's so many variables and it's like, how do you win an audition in 10 words or less, right? Well, mm-hmm. um, I can't do it in 10 words or less, but um, in general terms, I can say that um, certain concepts have served me well. For example, um, music is subjective because feelings are subjective. And, you know, so much of what we do, um, particularly on the oboe, um, if we go to an IDRS convention and then everybody there will be an oboist or a bassoonist, um, they might appreciate whenever somebody does something really well oboistically. However, life is not an oboe, is not an IDRS convention. Thank God. <laughs> and, uh, when you are playing in an audition, you have to realize that you're playing for a maximum of two or three people, maximum, who play oboe. Everybody else that you're playing for, you're, you know, the people on the committee are not oboists. And that's an important realization because they don't necessarily understand what we do oboistically because it's, you know, non-oboe players may not know how difficult any given thing is. However, musicians really understand and respond well to musical things. And I think that's what has served me well. You have to find things that impress objectively. And I use the word impress, you know, it's not the sole purpose of what we do musically, but you mentioned auditions and winning all those jobs. That's what you'll have to do is to win an audition in order to enjoy life in, in, in one of these wonderful orchestras. And... That's not the same as just any given, you know, performance, just in a normal concert. An audition is when you have to impress the most number of people in the least amount of time. And because things, some of the things are subjective and some are objective, I like to focus on the objective things. And I can share four very objective things with you and with all of our listeners immediately. Things that are objective, in other words, non-oboists will understand and, and they will agree, are intonation, rhythm, dynamic range, and uh, the last one is kind of obvious, but accuracy, it means the right notes. Those four things are objective, you know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. when I ask students, what do you think are the most important things in the audition? When somebody says tone, well, tone is important, but it's extremely subjective. Mm -hmm. Somebody might say, well... I, I like, you know, his tone. It's so beautiful. It's so dark. It says, well, I like, oh, really? I like her tone. It's so beautiful. It's, it's brighter, you know, and then it just becomes a question of taste. Now, I know there are those who say, well, tone doesn't matter. You know, I'm not an oboist. I'm an artist. Well, you know, this sounds great in an interview to say when people, you know, it, it, it's one of those statements. It's been made, actually. Just that, don't ask me who said that. But, uh, <laughs> you know, but that's, of course, nonsense, because would you ever say, what do you think of the singer, you know, voice aside? Uh-huh. <laughs> right. That doesn't work. It really <laughs> does have to be beautiful. You do need to have a beautiful voice. You need a beautiful tone. And I find that most people, you know, I don't find a solution, a situation where somebody will play and then there will be 
a discussion when one person will think, oh my God, it's the most glorious tone I've ever had. And somebody will say, I think it's absolute garbage. I don't think that's going to happen. It's just that people might disagree a little bit. But basically, as long as it sounds good, I think the people might appreciate it. But these four things that I mentioned earlier, intonation, rhythm, dynamic range, and accuracy, those things are absolutely objective to everyone. And just like the four wheels in the car, so long as you don't have one of those things, as long as one of the wheels is missing, you just cannot drive the car and it becomes undrivable. Mm-hmm. And this isn't to say that there aren't any other issues. There are, of course, many other issues. But, you know, the problem with auditions is it happens so often. You know, there are anywhere from 9 to 13 or 17 people judging you. And, you know, it's behind the screen. And... When you walk in front of this, the screen, you don't have any equity. Now, the committee doesn't automatically hate you and let you there, but you start with zero. They don't hate you. They don't love you. They don't know you. So candidate 73 comes out, and you have about, I don't know, six to ten minutes at most to, to show a great variety of things. And those four things I mentioned is not everything. It's just that as long as you don't have any of those things, you know, that's it. You know, game over. But unfortunately, that's where most people fail. They have, they might have a wonderful tone or they might have an interesting personality or they might have this or that. But then they don't have steady rhythm. And then the committee who's sitting there and they're possibly looking at the music and especially the conductor who's there, you know, they're imagining what it might be to play their parts along with what you're playing. So that's why these things are, you know, it, it may sound academic, but it's fairly obvious, but they're so important, and that's really where most people fail. And that's just, just that's most of the preparation is to have those things. But, you know, I will say another quick word on on, on how people do well in auditions or why that would happen. Another important part is to try to eliminate external circumstances influencing your performance because auditions are so stressful and, you know, you go someplace, you fly somewhere, you sleep in an unfamiliar bed, you have bad breakfast, you know, they call you to some room that you don't know and you have to wait. And then on their terms, eventually they call you at 11.43 a.m. or whatever it is. And at that moment, if you expect that everything will be right with the world and you will have the incredible inspiration and everything will just be perfect for you, well, it may happen. But in general, no. In general, all of those are external circumstances. So it's a much better idea to bring your own game no matter what. And for that, you simply have to identify what the challenges are every possible challenge and prepare how you will deal with it at home so you will come expecting what those challenges are with the solution for those challenges, such as endurance or technique or reads or functioning oboe, having good breakfast, you know, etc. whatever it is. Having a toothbrush and toothpaste, maybe, if you have to have lunch during rounds in between the second and third round of the audition or something, that you have something to eat, but you'll have a toothbrush. So you can, you know, so you don't have to sound like breakfast when you play. <laughs> it's little things. And that's, of course, why we're so, you know, obsessive compulsive always. You know, we, we're double replayers. But 
you know, it's the combination of all of these things that results in this confidence that you will be able to bring your product, bring your performance, bring your soul, everything all together, and it will not be influenced by external circumstances. What advice would you have for somebody who is um, taking auditions or perhaps just starting to take auditions and um, dealing with performance anxiety and perhaps they're not able to um, stay completely focused in the moment under pressure? Asking mm-hmm. for a friend. <laughs> sure. Well, gee, I, I, that sounds familiar. I mean, no, it's, it's very strange. I was having just about the worst read day of my life in the mat one day. Just, you know, just nothing was working. Uh, I've had many days like this, but that was just a really bad one. And I remember just out of the blue, this, I'm not going to say who and embarrassed uh, this wonderful colleague of mine, but he just came up to me and said, very honestly, you know, Eugene, you just never had a, a bad day. You just seem so calm always and so happy. And it was truly, it was, you know, a bad read day means it's the worst moment in our lives, right? So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just having that exact day. And I was like, oh, my God, first of all, of course, thank you so much for saying it. But really? I really create this impression because, gee, that certainly does, that's not how it feels inside. That is not how I feel. I feel very differently sometimes. And, you know, so much of this um, is, you know, I tell my students, be your own friend. You have to, you have to protect your feelings. You have to really try to build yourself up, if you will, because it's so easy to do the opposite. And, you know, it's okay to say and to maybe, uh, I don't know, chastise yourself in, in private, you know, you so-and-so. How could you make this mistake? It sounds so bad. But, you know, if that's what you end up doing, this kind of, you know, self-psychology is very damaging. And you have to try to build this, you know, dominion, this empire of positive energy that is directed at your effort. You have to invest in yourself. And, you know, no one else is going to do it for you. It doesn't matter how many times your teacher, your friends, your colleagues just, you know, tell you how great you are. I mean, it's nice to hear, but it, it really, we have to invest in ourselves. Now, specifically, um, how to get ready for auditions and deal with anxiety. Well, um, I mean, I, I, I cannot tell you how much I believe in recording and recording ourselves, recording while, when practicing. I mean, it's just, there's no substitution simply because whatever we feel um, is not always how it sounds. Those are very different things. And sometimes, in fact, most of the time, we're so influenced by how things feel, we think that's actually how it sounds. Um, And that's not true. We... Um, when I listen, I still I record myself almost every day, and it's not because I'm trying to you know, win a job. A job. It's because um, I hear things that I was not aware of while I was playing. 
sometimes I hear wonderful things that I did not know I was doing. And I said to myself, really, wow, that was unintentional. I should actually do that intentionally. And other times I hear, oh, my God, why am I doing this? This is so, this is so completely wrong. So stop it. You know, <laughs> and it's just it's an amazing tool for which uh, there's no substitution. And again, in the advice about feelings, that's why people are nervous, because uh, if we rely on feelings. If you rely on feelings, your feelings will change from day to day. On the day of the audition, in the night before, you might feel completely divine power. But then next day morning at the audition, you might feel otherwise. So feelings will change. It's, it's, it's just, a, it's, you know, and thank God for that. But um, when you record, then when you know that you tend to rush in this measure, and when you have identified this problem, this challenge for you, then you have practiced it, you have dealt with it, and then you no longer have the fear that this will rush because you know you've worked on it and it's going to work. And another thing is, of course, um, while identifying challenges, because the, it's the challenges that make you nervous at the audition, well, endurance is a tremendous challenge. It's just, it's, it's, it's very tough because we don't know what they're going to ask, in which order, and am I going to be okay? Am I going to be able to get through this whole list without, you know, dying completely? So, um, you know, I've... Um, I heard this expression since my days in Russia. There was a great, uh, great Russian general, Alexander Suvorov, um, from the great Napoleonic War. Everything is great in Russia. Great everything, right? So, <laughs> so the great thing that I heard in order to have, are you ready? Great endurance. Uh, so uh, the saying translated to English is, uh, that's, when they asked Suvorov why why has he never lost one battle in his entire military career, he said, because when I train my soldiers, I make sure that they train hard and fight easy. Train hard, fight easy. It means that during the training process, he made their life so incredibly difficult, so, so tough, that when they actually had to do battle, that was much easier. And then, by the way, just not that long ago, I learned that 2,000 years earlier, the Roman soldiers, as I found out, would train with with wooden swords and shields that were twice the weight. So when they were to do battle with normal um, swords and shields, it was easier. And the point of this, if you want to have endurance in the audition, look at the list. You're going to have to play most likely that exposition of the Mozart concerto. Then you look at the list of the audition excerpts and let's just name them one through, I don't know, 20 or, or, you know, 37, whatever it is. And then ask your roommate, Facebook friend, you know, I, I don't care who, just name five, six numbers at random, one through 37. And so that they will pick out this random list of excerpts that will end up being slow, slow, fast, fast, slow. And you play through the exposition of the most, followed by five or six of these excerpts that they chose. So it's, you know, it's, it's not up to you. And you do not stop. You make a mistake, do not stop. Your notes don't speak, do not stop. Because you're practicing for endurance. That's, that's the only purpose. And once you've played it twice, once you, once you've played it once, wait for, I don't know, 10 seconds, do it again. You do each list twice. 
you will be so tired at the end of each one of the second one. But knowing the fact that you can do this twice will give you the confidence for endurance that you can do it once. That's how that works, you know, mm -hmm. push yourself. And then you have your friends pick out, a, I don't know, five or six other lists. And you can even do this yourself. I mean, it's not rocket science. If you look at all these audition lists, you know, they pretty much ask for very similar things for both first and second oboe and English horn. And so you can pretty much guess what it's going to be. But this way of practicing, you know, the fact that you know you can play this very challenging list twice and you're dying by the end of the second time. And it's so difficult. You're just, oh, my God, I hate life. I hate oboe playing. I should go to law school. But <laughs> no, you, you've done it twice. So you have the confidence that you can do it once. That's the way it works. It's just physically, physiologically, this is how it works. And the one important thing is you really cannot stop because the moment somebody asks you, so, you know, hey, stop, stop playing. We have to go to dinner. If you stop in, in the middle of Brahms violin concerto and say, I'll be right there, you have, at that moment, ruined your whole trial list. You have to really go back to the beginning. You stopped. You know, that's not the same. And, you know, it's it's not fun. That's the tenacity part. That's the that's what Harold Gombert meant that, that we must have tenacity of a bull. But yeah, that's tough. It's very tough. But it just inevitably creates this kind of strength, and it really um, it really helps with the challenges of endurance when you show up and they ask you a similar looking list. Do you remember? Well, gee, I've been doing this for two weeks. You know, I don't know how this goes, and I only have to do this once this time. So, again, this helps you. We're nervous because of what we don't know. Auditions, they, unless you approach them in the right way, they represent this myriad of unknown, crazy challenges, and that's what makes us nervous. Instead, if we analyze and just, you know, compartmentalize, identify each challenge, each general challenge, like endurance, like technique, like reads, by the way. That's a whole different interview, right? We <laughs> talk about it now, too, as well. But just, uh, or like, I know this seems obvious, but I can't believe that my audition is next week. My elbow's all messed up. Well, that happens. But, you know, next time, call the repairman a month ahead of time and make sure that they can look at your oboe. They can also make sure that they can look at your oboe, make it perfect, and also will send it back, unlike some repairmen that I know that you know, sit on for you know for months until you issue that's through the State Department. <laughs> so you know, make sure that they you know a few weeks prior to the to the event, important event, they will work on your oboe, or you can go there in person and you know get it done. Then you will have a functioning instrument, so you will not have to be nervous about it. So you'll have a working instrument. And so forth. I mean, there are not that many general challenges. And dealing with practicing, you know, musically speaking, while all music, I mean, I know it sounds very simplified, but really, there are two kinds of music. There's fast music and slow music, just very generally. And both of them have different sets of challenges that have to be dealt with differently. And once you have done this, you know, it not only gets you ready for the next thing you give an audition, 
that's how you practice for all auditions. That's, that's how you get ready, um, to depend on this process, on, you know, the wonderfully, uh, successful, uh, operation in Venezuela called El Sistema, you know, the system. Well, I stole their name. That's my system, El Sistema. <laughs> and that's the system of, of winning that allows you to not rely on, my God, I hope God will shed his grace on the, on, on me in the moment of the audition. No, it doesn't matter. Um, you will bring your best game because you have practiced the right way in every possible way. Since you've played principal in so many major uh, American orchestras, I wonder if you can give us some tips on um, aspects of principal playing that would make you, uh, in your words, a great principal. So as the same show is, it's enough about me. What do you think about me, right? Uh, um, I mean, I appreciate that question very much, but uh, perhaps my colleagues could answer that on my behalf. I mean, of course, many things. Number one and most important thing is that I really do try to serve the composer. That is the number one most important thing. My father always used to say that, you know, show music in you, not you in music. And does that make sense? In English, mm-hmm. don't mm-hmm. show how extraordinary you are in this musical world. Show how this musical world is amazing and be the vehicle to show that. Something like that, you know, the longer version. Um, and my dad is a musician, of course, and he was my first major musical influence and teacher. And so is my uncle. Uh, my dad is a, is, is a uh, violist. My uncle is a pianist. And... You know, um, this, I, I very much appreciate his ethics because, you know, orchestral life is full of all kinds of things, let me tell you. And one of those things is, you know, the grind can get to you here and there, and it certainly happens. And it's very sad when it becomes the reason why the spark is gone. And I look at my dad and, and the love and the excitement with which he has that he has for music to this day is incredible. It's so contagious. And, you know, it's the same kind of musical integrity that I admire so much. And, gee, not too many conductors, but some, like James Levine, for example, or like Ricardo Muti, who always put music first. Music first. And, of course, they're brilliant and they're amazing and they have incredible skills, but they serve the composer, they respect the composer. And... You know, I've been so lucky and I've been so privileged to play in these incredible orchestras next to very good musicians, amazing musicians. And, you know, um, I've learned from so many. In some cases, I've learned what to do and others maybe what not to do. But uh, I tried to learn. And <laughs> the point is, I really do try with everything I do not to show how glorious it is to play first oboe, which it is, honestly. I love it. But, you know... But just to to really do right by by the notes that the composer has put on paper. I mean, that's and that, by the way, just allow me to have this opportunity to, you know, that I'm in the middle of a war between me and those who say Chaik and Shasti. <laughs> just, let me just end it right here since I have the opportunity. Unless 
we're going to continue on this path and end up in the world in which we are playing works by Mao and Beef and <laughs> and so forth. And, you know, it's not only because I'm Russian, by the way, and these two particular composers, and also Rock 3, like Rock 3 and Shasky 5 and Chike 4. You know? I mean, I understand that those are Russian names and they have, oh my God, three syllables. And seven <laughs> but, you know, it's because these composers, in every sense, have given us our lives. Everything and everyone in our lives are because of the music that they have written. So I kind of think it's the least that we can do is to treat them and their, at least their names with respect. It doesn't have to be with perfect Russian accent like Piotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky. It doesn't have to be that. But really, even it's Tchaikovsky, you know, with the Tennessee uh, you know, playing or something. Even that, you know, at least uh, I think it's respectful. And that's why whenever somebody says Shasti, oh boy. Uh, <laughs> so I'm using this particular opportunity that you have afforded me uh, to uh, make this point. But what we were talking about earlier, about what I do as a principal oboist, uh, you know what, here's another point. Try to learn to give a beautiful A at the beginning. That's just an important thing. Speaking of respect, it's such an incredible privilege to do that, to begin every single concert, every single rehearsal with this, and some think of it as a guaranteed solo. Well, you know what? It's not about you. It's not about the oboe. It's about this amazing process that, 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 that we can start. So that's important. And I remember when Ray Still um, told me, actually during his 19th, 90th birthday celebration, it was the last time I saw him, um, he told me um, that... Every time he gave the A, he thought of the oboe solo in the second movement of Schubert Unfinished Symphony, which also starts in the A. It's a, it's a piano dolce, and then it just, it doesn't start, it, you know, arrives. It should really be like that, and it gave me a, a it just gave me a wonderful uh, image. I always think of that when I give the A. It, it's a. It's a wonderful way to begin this this journey that's about to start. And, well, gee, there's more. I don't think we have time, but um, I really do hope that, that uh, in, in, in my work, through my work, it's, um, it comes across that I really do try to, um, I, I try to demonstrate the respect that I have for the composer instead of trying to pursue some sort of glory. Um, I think that would be wrong. For our last question, you've referred to your students a few times throughout the interview, and I wonder if you could talk to us about your um, pedagogical approach or perhaps things you um, find yourself really emphasizing in teaching your students, what's important to you to portray to them. Sure. Well, teaching has become a huge part of my life um, for so many reasons that I've described to you, of course, because of, of the fact everything that I am and so much of what I have is because it was given to me um, by my teachers. Um, and, you know, I started teaching 20, I don't know, 22, 23 years ago because they asked me for a lesson. And I said yes. And then I, I remember this horrifying feeling when I felt so so pleased about myself that they asked me. And then I realized, my God, I know 
nothing about teaching. I just have no idea how to do it. I know how to do it with me. I know how to be inside my head, more or less, but uh, some days more than others. But at least this is for me. But, you know, teaching, it's like you have to find the right key for the other person and also do, I mean, my God, this is, this, this is a whole, it's a very different thing. And, you know, it's been 23 years and, Oh, also, you know what, just to be fair, when I started teaching back then, because everybody always talks about, oh, teaching is so important, teaching is so important, and, you know, it's it's nice, it's easy to agree with that, but um, now, you know, my career, while it isn't finished, and I know what I have achieved, I know what I have, I have to do, and I sort of know who I am maybe more now than before, but teaching... You know, it isn't about me, and it's never finished, and it's a completely um, unending journey. That's another difference, that my career eventually will end. Teaching will never end, because it's going through me, uh, you know, what was given to me, and uh, I will pass it on to others. It will never end, and this is an amazing feeling. And also, I'll be honest with you, I have great fear sometimes for the future, as our world is changing, and... In a way, so much more as possible, more than ever. And then there are forces at work that it's a little bit scary who's out there on the podium once in a while or what values we have in our culture of orchestral playing. So it's really my my chance to really try to contribute something to that that I really believe in, both musically and personally. And I will say that there's uh, musically two things that I make very clear to my students right away. First of all, when I meet new students, I always ask them this question, why are you a musician? Because shockingly, the first answer they give me is always wrong. That answer is, because I love music. Well, that's wrong. You know why it's wrong? Because everybody loves music. Dentists love music, you know, Uber drivers love music. Everybody likes music. You don't have to be a musician. You don't have to choose this life only because you love music. Then I ask them to think about it, and the second answer is, it's, it's basically one way or another, they end up saying, it's because I love to, you know, emote, share, project, uh, express, whatever it is, for others. And that's the right answer. We're not musicians just for ourselves. It's for others. It's for other people. What we do is for other people. That's a tremendously important realization. It's not about you. It's not about how it makes you feel. And this, by the way, 100% translates back to auditions. Let's not go back to that pleasant discussion. But, you know, it's no, it's no different in auditions. It's not a task. You have to bring something special to other people. And when you truly embody that, when they really understand that, it's not... It's not just about how they feel. It's about how it comes across. Uh, that's when something interesting starts to happen. That's number one. And number two, well, you know, I teach oboe, so we're all instrumentalists. Um, and I, I often teach non-oboe players. Uh, it's, it's always very interesting how, uh, I mean, there are um, so many similarities in our fears um, of equipment failures and all of that. But, you know... I always say them, I say to them, so look, 
imagine if you played something and they come up to you and you know afterwards and say, you know, when you play, it's really like singing. And what would you say to that? And of course, everybody at that moment says, well, you know, I'll probably say thank you. It's a compliment. And if they come to you afterwards and say, well, you know, it sounds very nice. It's extremely, you know, instrumentally virtuosic. It's just not like singing. Is that as good? And of course, no, it's never as good. So singing good, not singing bad, right? So this we all understand. And then I ask, well, why? Why is it that we instrumentalists immediately think that being compared to the voice is a compliment? And that's an important thing because... Of course, that the key word is because it's natural. And everything we do as instrumentalists is artificial. We strum, pluck, blow, hit, bow something, you know, whatever it is. It's all artificial. It gives us this kind of artificial precision, in fact. And it's this exact precision that is the enemy of expression. Precise is the enemy of, of natural. Um, and... You know, you asked me earlier whom I admired, which other oboe players or non-oboe players, you know, piano players or singers or um, string players I admired. Well, when you hear any great instrumentalist, I mean, I, of course, as an oboist, might appreciate just how thick and juicy the middle C sounds when Peter Bowman plays it or Dick Woodhams. You know, it's amazing. But that's just me because I'm an oboist. But if you hear... Actually, when you hear the playing, that's not what moves you. That's not what is amazing. What's amazing is just how much, how vocal it is, how natural it is, how singing it is. Mm-hmm. And that is really a very important thing to learn how to do. It's not just one or two things. But I will, I will say to you, the one thing, maybe the most important thing I've learned in the Chicago Symphony um, is um, legato. Because that is the one tool that we instrumentalists have to be more like singers, to try to sustain and to connect notes. That's what that quite, quite literally means in Italian. Allegato means connected. Uh, how to connect our notes. Because, you know, students first learn how to make notes and only then they maybe learn how to connect them. And that's just a very important, particular instrumental thing that we can use to emulate a natural connection between notes, also known as singing. Eugene Isatov, thank you so much for being our guest on Double Read Dish. This was such a wonderful conversation. Um, where can our listeners find you on the Internet? Well, first of all, thanks for having me. It was a very nice chat. Um, and um, I have a – I'm not too difficult to find. Uh, I have a website, obosolo.com. I am at Principal Oboe on Facebook, and I am at Oboe Solo on YouTube. So if you want to find me, you can. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us for episode 12. You can find us on all of the social media. Email us at doubleredish at gmail.com. And now you can find us on Google Play. Don't forget to tune in on June 1st, where we will have an interview with bassoonist Medina Mackie-Jackson.